May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're not exactly sure about the incidents that Jesus spoke of in the Gospel lesson this morning, where he speaks about a group of Galileans whom Pilate killed and mingled their blood with their sacrifices, or when he talks about a tower in Jerusalem, a tower called Siloam, that fell on some presumably unsuspecting people and killed 18 of them in a single day. But we know that things like this happened in his day because they happen in our day. These are the sort of things that happen throughout time. The two events that Jesus speaks of are wildly different, um, but they're equally distressing, and they both end in the same result, death. And these are the things that we read in the newspaper or watch on television or on the internet, wherever it is you get your news. Uh, we, we are inundated with these similar um, distressing stories. People who die and are in the wrong place at the wrong time or, or suffer the, um, the effects of nefarious intent by others. And the accounts strike fear in our hearts. This is why the news people keep telling them to us, because they want us to tune back in to make sure that we don't miss something else that we should be afraid of, constantly keeping us in fear. Let me give you a story that's similar, so you keep tuned in. March 24, 2015, uh, Andreas Lubitz is a co-pilot of a German Wings Flight 9525. Mr. Lubitz is the co-pilot. The pilot gets up, goes out to check something in the back, and Mr. Lubitz gets up and he quickly locks the door to the cockpit while the pilot is out of it. He then takes his seat back in the, the, um, the left seat of the, of the airplane. And he puts the thrust full Thor and then the, the nose of the plane down. And in seconds, 150 people perished in this plane crash because he decided to commit suicide by, virtue, by using a plane. On the plane that day were people just like the people sitting in this room and in the room next to us. They were men and women, boys and girls. Uh, they were school teachers. There were 16 high school students, so high school sophomores, on the plane that day on some sort of school trip, traveling from Barcelona uh, in Spain to Dusseldorf in, in Germany. The, the flight was to be an hour and 38 minutes, so a rather short flight. I thought about how all of the people who got on that plane in the moments before that were in the airport going through the sort of the mindless things that we've all done about how teenagers were on their phones making plans for what they would do later on that day and how uh, husbands were calling wives and wives were calling husbands and grandparents were calling grandchildren and saying I'll see you this evening and we'll do this and that and the other thing. And then another story, of course you all probably remember this one a few years back, um, there were a group of Egyptian oil rig workers in Libya. So they're working on oil rigs in Libya and they were captured by ISIS fighters. And there was a video made where they were taken out to the edge of the sea and um, in a single file line and then all of them beheaded. Their one crime against the world is that they had the audacity to be Christians. A similar event took place just this week in Nigeria where people were murdered just because they were Christians. Now here's the thing. The people who got on flight 9525 could have just as easily got on flight 1022 or 2427 or some other flight. They could have not got on that flight at all, waited another day. Things could have happened differently. And if they had, well then those teenagers would have met their friends and those husbands would have seen their wives and wives their husbands and grandparents their grandchildren and everything would have just been fine. 
Or if those poor Coptic Christians from Egypt had not taken jobs as oil rig workers, but instead had taken jobs at factories or shoe salesmen or tour guides, they would be sitting home tonight drinking coffee, talking religion and politics and whatever they do in Egypt. If they hadn't taken those jobs, if they hadn't booked those flights, if they hadn't done what they had done, their lives would not have ended as they had. Which brings up the question, how do we avoid making those mistakes? How do we avoid taking the wrong job, getting on the wrong plane, crossing the wrong street, being in the wrong place at the wrong time? And you know the answer to that one. I think most people hold two contradictory axioms in their head together at the same time. The first one goes like this. It comes from an American uh, a folk singer, Bob Dylan. The times, they are a-changing. And that is so true, isn't it? The times, they are a-changing. And I was at a, a, an 85th birthday party yesterday. And they had a list of, you know, trivia questions from 1934 when the, the, uh, when the, the, the birthday girl was born. I didn't know a single answer to any of those questions, you know, like things that happened in 1934. And, and, and Abby's saying to me, well, take a guess. I'm like, but it would just be a guess. I mean, I, I would like to make an educated guess, and I can't even make a, an educated guess about any of these. The times, they are a change, and things are radically different than they were 85, 50, even 10 years ago. The world was quite a different place. But the second dictum is also true. And it goes like this. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And that one is also true. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And so notwithstanding Bobby Dylan's, you know, kind of knowledge of the zeitgeist, um, <laughs> that being true, I, I think that the, the gospel lesson leans more towards the latter dictum. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Jesus grew up in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. Um, he grew up in what is, was, rather than, a time which was a hotbed of Jewish revolutionaries. People who wanted to start a war with the Romans. They wanted to start a guerrilla-type war, a, a, a clandestine war. People who, who hung out in the, in the shadows and, and would fight back at the Romans until and, and, and they got enough momentum. And then they would gather together an army and launch a full-on attack against the Romans. And they would tell stories. They would tell stories about their forebears who had done a very similar thing. There was this fellow called Judas. They called him Judas the Hammer. His real name was Judas Maccabeus. Judas the Hammer sounds pretty cool. I, I kind of imagine him in like a, a Mexican wrestling mask. But anyway, Judas the Hammer um, led the people of Israel in a war against the, the most powerful army in the world at the time, the Syrians. And he drove them out of Jerusalem with a little ragtag band of soldiers. And they beat a, a, a massive army. And Jesus grew up with people all around him telling the stories about the good old days when Judas Maccabeus wasn't afraid of Gentile scum, and he would launch a war against them. But those were the good old days. You know, back when people trusted in God and believed in, in the power of God. No, not now. We let these Romans push us around and tell us what to do. Pilate also knew this, the governor of, of uh, Palestine. 
the Roman governor of Palestine, Pilate, wasn't just somebody who executed Jesus. He was somebody who would not allow even a, a little bit of resistance to come his way because this could turn into what the people up the north wanted, a revolution. And he wasn't about to let that happen. And so the gospel reading today, there's this, this mention of these Galileans whom Pilate had murdered. And I imagine the story went something like this, that there were these fellows who went from Galilee to Jerusalem to worship and to, to sacrifice. We know that they had sacrifices with them, and the only place to make those is in Jerusalem. And so these people from Galilee went down to Jerusalem to worship. And somewhere along the way, Pilate got a tip. There are some, uh, there are some revolutionaries. There are some, some uh, insurgents coming from Galilee. They're going to try to start uh, you know, a skirmish. They're going to try to start a riot. And so Pilate looks out for the people who are suspected to be like that. And he sees that, you know, he sends out this, this squad of, of soldiers and they lay in wait. And here come a dozen men. And I see them bringing along little lambs with them. They're on their way to the temple. And the police capture them. And they murder them. And they kill the animals too. And they leave them dead in the street. So that anybody who thinks about starting an uprising against Rome will know this is what you get. Now, how long does it take for that news story to get out? Not long at all. And here's what it would say in the Jewish version. Jewish patriots murdered on the streets by the police. And here's how it would read in the Roman version. The terrorists are intercepted and eliminated. Jesus says, this thing happened. He tells another story about um, the, the people who bring it up to Jesus. He says to them, do you think these were the worst type of sinners in the world, that they died like this? The answer, of course, is no. And then the second story, the story of this tower in Siloam, this tower in Jerusalem. We assume this is an accident. Uh, maybe the tower is under, under construction, or maybe it was built, and there was this poor architecture. Whatever happens, some 18 people are hanging out somewhere in or around the tower when it collapses and they die. And Jesus juxtaposes these two and says this, Do you suppose that these people who suffered this accident were worse sinners than everyone else, that they died in this tragic death? The answer again is no. They didn't deserve death any more than some other schlep like me. You know, They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then Jesus has a very hard word for the people who are sitting around listen to him. He says this, unless you repent, you too will suffer the same fate. Well, let's be honest. Whether they repent or not, they're going to suffer the same fate, right? Whether they die of old age or they die of some accident or they die of whatever. I mean, they're all going to die. Repent or not, they're going to die. Unless that's not what he's talking about. Unless he's not um, saying that they would not die, but rather is juxtaposing a tragic end with a glorious victory. There's two ways to go out of this world. With a tragic, oh, isn't that a shame? Or a victory. They have overcome the world and the grave together with Christ. And you've been at those funerals, right? You've been at both of those. The tragic one where everybody just feels the tragedy. And the glorious one where everybody knows that this person is ushered into the presence of God. 
Both of us bring a sense of pain, but there's a, there's a difference in them. Jesus tells a final story. It's a story about a guy who owns a vineyard. And this seems totally incongruent with what he's been talking about. Here, a guy owns a vineyard. In this vineyard, there's a tree. It's a fig tree. And he goes out looking for figs, of course. He's not looking for plums on it, right? He goes out and he's looking for figs on the fig tree. But there's never any year after year, there's no figs on the fig tree. And so he says to the guy who's his gardener, chop it down. And the gardener's like, wait, wait, wait. We've got some time invested in this, you know. Give me another year. Let me see if I can nurture this fig tree back to producing figs, or to uh, begin to producing figs. And, and, and if that happens, we'll, we'll just all enjoy them. But if not, if we go another year, cut it down. I think all of these tie together in this way. Jesus is saying the parable of the fig tree is this. That God is looking for signs of life in Israel. He's looking for authentic discipleship in Israel. He's looking for people who are real followers in Israel. True children of God. And he's not finding them. And Israel had better be prepared because he had cut the tree down if he doesn't find life. And this is the same message in the, the story of the Galileans and the people who died uh, in, in the accident in Jerusalem. They have tragic ends. And Israel's going to have a tragic end. Because God is not looking to bring about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not coming about. And I think Tom Wright, if, you've been, if you had been with us in the, the midweek study, is right. The kingdom of God does not come about by tanks coming in. This is not, God does not send in the tanks. The world will be changed through kindness and gentleness and love. This is how the kingdom comes. To all those revolutionaries in Galilee, Jesus is saying, pay attention. You're not going to bring about the kingdom of God through a revolution. At least not that kind. I think too many times during Lent, um, we get this very morose navel-gazing kind of repentance idea. You know, it just is about shame and guilt and all that sort of thing. And I don't think that's what it's about. I think repentance is about taking a moment to, to assess how we think about things. Assess how we do things. And repentance means, you know what? We have to have this honest, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop doing that. I remember this... Um, the story of a bishop who, who was really an aged bishop, like in his 90s, and, and he came to this parish. They were giving him this, you know, uh, great party, and he comes, and, and they said to him, would you, would you speak to the children? And, and he says, well, of course, but I have no idea what to say. And, and so the bishop was kind of going through these, these um, well, maybe I'll just give him some words, and he, he gave a couple theological words, and, and he says, repentance. Does anybody know what repentance means? And, and children were raising their head, and they were saying things like, doesn't that mean when you feel bad about something? And, yeah. and somebody said, well, doesn't that mean when you're sorry? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of that. And, and, and there were some other things. That, that, doesn't that mean when you feel guilty? Yeah. And there's a little girl who's waving her hand you know, wildly trying to get the bishop's attention. And, and he's just skipping over thinking this, this is too difficult of a word. And he finally comes to her and he says, yes, honey, what do you think repentance means? And she says, isn't that when you're sorry enough to quit? <laughs> He's like, yes, that's exactly what repentance means. It's when you're sorry enough to quit and you turn around and you go a different direction. And when you think differently. And Jesus is trying to tell these people who want a revolution, this is not the way. 
Polarization where we hate our enemies is not the way. What does he say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Pray for them. Don't destroy your enemies. Make friends. Galilee, a hotbed of revolutionaries. Don't be like that. Don't live this way. Beware of hypocrisy. Don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who has power over your soul. That's whom you should fear. Uh, my son gave me this uh, little book called uh, A Book of Uncommon Prayer. I think he meant it as a joke because he knows that I have a book of common prayer and uh, I've given them one. So he thought, well, maybe an uncommon prayer would be nice for me. But the thing is, is it's, it's profoundly clever. And the guy who wrote, writes these prayers is a, a Roman Catholic um, and, and they're great little prayers. There's prayers for like all sorts of things, like for cashiers and checkout counter folks and, and for people who need decent shoes and a, a prayer for a celebration of brief things, for example, church services. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Um, and, and then there's a prayer in here that, that just struck me. I didn't know what to do with it when I first read it. And it's a prayer for Osama bin Laden. Yes, even him, the stupid murderous slime. That's the title of the prayer. Bear with me as I read some of it to you. Because I cannot pray grudgingly, ragedly, reluctantly, furiously, confusedly, complicatedly for his shattered soul, what is the point of praying at all? Yes, even him, the man who murdered thousands of innocents, among them Christine Hansen, age three, Dana Falkenberg, age three, David Broadhorse, age three, and Julia McCourt, age four. Among them, Dana's sister Zoe, who I'm absolutely sure was huddling her little sister in her arms as the plane exploded. Even him, the man who cackled in his cave when he heard of the success of his plans, who cackled at the roasting of small children, but there must have been a shard of holiness in that man, at least originally. There must have been a small, shriveled soul once. Maybe there was a small, shriveling moment much later as he sat wrapped in his robes in Abadadad, watching himself on an endless video loop. I didn't write this, he did. The narcissistic ass. Who felt a flicker of shame at what he had done and how he had wasted his life and how he had endangered the very faith he so adamantly insisted he was defending. I hope so. I pray. I pray that somehow, somewhere, sometime, he wept his copious sins. I pray that his dark energy was dissolved by the capital M mercy and cleansed by love and sent to redeem itself by the engines of insects and birds and tiny fish in clear pools. I pray that I am right and that there is a capital F forgiveness bigger than any slime and that somehow in ways I do not understand but believe in with all and not a little fear that capital Y you have a chamber in your heart for even him. Even him. I read that and I'm like, man, I don't know if I can go there. Can I pray for my enemies, that sort of enemy, with anger, with honesty, but also with hope. Jesus says to Job, 
unless you repent, you too will perish. Just like that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.